It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those who know about the show, it's in different parts. Part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, tonight we have two special guests, so we're not really going to be taking questions about estate planning and elder law. And if you have those questions to ask, we're doing seminars in May. Tuesday, May 22nd, we're in Queens in Massabeth at Connolly's Corner at 11, 3, and 7. Thursday, May 24th, we're in Howard Beach at Lenny's Clam Bar at 11 o'clock and 3 p.m. Friday, May 25th, we're in Bayside, Queens at the Adria Hotel, 11 and 3. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, come see us there. Now, we're in Queens this month. Next month, we'll be in Manhattan and Staten Island. Then we'll be back in Brooklyn in July or so. But the main part about estate planning, again, is try to save your assets for your loved ones. Now, the reason we're not going to spend a lot of time on estate planning and elder law tonight, we have two guests. The first guest is Alan Rode, and he's a film historian who has a book about Michael Curtiz. And for those of you who don't know, Michael Curtiz is one of the great directors in the history of Hollywood. Now, we talk about this in our interview. Michael Curtiz is sometimes not as highly regarded as some of our classic film directors like John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, because he doesn't have maybe the individual signature to his films that some of these other guys have. And we do talk about it, how Andre Saris, the great film critic, who I think is the greatest film critic of all time, did not highly regard Michael Curtiz because of that. But when you look at his body of work, you can't deny... You know, you, you can't deny the, the, the whole body of work is a part. Beth, what are your, some of your favorite Michael Curtiz movies? I have several favorites. Um, I'll start with Robin Hood because that is everybody fell in love with Errol Flynn in Robin Hood. And he fell in love with Olivia de Havilland. And I think anybody that watches that sees the sparks fly and know that they, they both really were smitten with each other. Um, there's the famous sword fight between Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone. And Basil Rathbone was supposed to be one of the best sword fighters ever. And he would, he'd always complain about Errol Flynn because Errol Flynn was the star, but he thought he should, you know, Errol Flynn um, didn't make as much money as Basil Rathbone, but everybody loved him more, so Basil Rathbone was jealous. But um, all the other people... Um, oh my goodness, Invisible Man. If anybody remembers the Claude Invisible Rains. Man. Well, Claude Rains, um, he's King John. Oh, and he's the nastiest person ever. According to Alan Rode, Michael Curtiz's favorite film was Yankee Doodle Dandy, and partly because he was a very patriotic American, which a lot of people who escaped from Europe back in the, in the teens and the 20s were. They were good Americans, but that was his favorite film film with Jimmy Cagney, Yankee Doodle Dandy. I don't know if it, it, I know people know Jimmy Cagney from all the the he's a he's a bad guy and you know gangster movies, but he was a hoofer. He was a fantastic dancer and boy this shows it off. Um I love it. I love it. You know, uh, you talked about Jimmy Cagney for the gangster movies. One of the most fav- famous of his gangster parts was Angel with Dirty Faces, Rocky Sullivan, where he's led off to the chair and he's grabbing the radiator to stop from going to the chair, and nobody knows whether it's an act or whether it's for real. But I, I, I know you don't think as highly of that film as I do, but you're not from New York and you don't appreciate <laughs> Irish-American culture that Jamie Cagney and, and Pat O'Brien used to have. Where, where He was from New York, New York City, Manhattan. Where where was uh, do you know where um uh Jimmy Cagney was from? Yeah, Jimmy Cagney was from Yorkville. Yorkville, that's where you were born. Yeah, that's why everybody that I knew <laughs> when I was a little boy knew Jimmy Cagney from when he was there 20, 30 years earlier, but uh you know. Okay. Okay. Okay, so 
We're going to be talking to Alan Rode in his book about Michael Curtis, the great film director. You know, and, and, and Life with Father, uh, King Crow, Creole with uh, Elvis Presley, The Charge of the Light Brigade, Captain Blood, Life with Father, Casablanca. <laughs> great, great set of films. And after that, we're going to change subjects on you dramatically. We're going to be talking to Franklin Graham about a book he has about his father, the late Billy Graham. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, May 22nd at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens on Thursday, May 24th at 11 a.m and 3 p.m. and on Friday, May 25th at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718 238 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecblyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is is Alan Rode, film historian and author. And I saw him a, a few weeks ago on Turner Classic Movies, where he was discussing director Michael Curtiz, on whom he has a book out. How are you doing today, Alan? Mike, couldn't be better. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so Michael Curtis. I know a lot of people out there probably have no idea who he is, but at the same time, I doubt if there's hardly anybody out there over the age of 50 who doesn't know his films. That's exactly right. Uh, we uh, celebrate every Yuletide by watching Curtis's Wife Christmas. We, uh, uh, we also uh, mark the 4th of July by watching Yankee Doodle Dandy that he also directed. And every time we watch Casablanca, we fall in love all over again. But no one remembers the fellow that directed these classic films. So I think with my book, I've kind of uh, righted the scales uh, to an extent on, on that, on his uh, anonymity. Yeah, because I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people that are somewhat interested in film, they know who John Ford is, was. They know Howard Hawks. They know Alfred Hitchcock. But they don't necessarily know Michael Curtis. Why is that? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with timing. Uh, he died uh, early in 1962, and this was before the renaissance of uh, appreciation, if you will, of golden age directors uh, by people like Peter Bogdanovich and Richard Schickel with his, uh, the men who made the movies and so on and so forth. That's part of it. The other part of it is that he is not, he doesn't fit into the auteur theory that was really popularized in this country by Andrew Saris and his uh, Directors and Directions book, and uh, even in France with the Cachet du Cinema and all of that. He was, uh, Curtis was kind of the Swiss army knife of classic cinema. So uh, a, a lot of people who started writing about classic cinema and directors in the early 60s kind of uh, wrote him off as a vocational mechanic of the studio system. And as I discovered and wrote in my book, nothing could be further than the truth. Why do you, uh, I mean, Andrew Sars, great film critic, but he doesn't rank 
Michael Curtiz very highly compared to some of the other great directors. That's correct, and I think that uh, I think that uh, he does uh, uh, people who love classic films, and I think he does Curtiz a disservice. I always thought that uh, despite Andrew Serres being a great groundbreaking critic and someone who could turn a phrase about movies better than anybody, this notion of taking directors and categorizing them in terms of winners and losers and all of that stuff, I always thought was very uh, somewhat arrogant and dismissive. And I, I think that you have to look at the body of work that Curtis put together he directed his first film in 1912. Uh, he was there watching the Lumiere Brothers movies at the turn of the 20th century and was really a pioneer through silent films. He made o- almost 80 silent films and then came to Warner Brothers in 1926 right at the advent of sound and the jazz singer. He was a pioneer in two-strip and then three-strip Technicolor. And he made the first film in this division, in widescreen this division at Paramount with White Christmas. So he really was a pioneer. And in his own way, I think he was an auteur uh, with the performances he got from, from great actors and the movies that he made. One of the actors he worked with frequently, which I, I think in retrospect, I think some critics have a higher opinion, Errol Flynn. Absolutely, and and Flynn, uh, it was a uh, it was a very contentious relationship. They made twelve pictures together, and uh, he put Flynn in his first uh, picture, um, uh, the Case of the Curious Bride, where Flynn really had a bit part as a, in flashback as the murder victim. But in Captain Blood, uh, Warner's put all their chips on the table by gambling with with Flynn after Robert Donut bowed out of the title role there uh, with an illness. So uh, Flynn and Curtiz uh, really rose together. And, of course, their relationship was contentious because Errol Flynn didn't like Michael Curtiz because Curtiz could be an autocrat and could mistreat the quote-unquote little people like the sound gaffer and the bit actor, which he did to vent pressure. And uh, Flynn also... Uh, was very insecure in his ability as an actor. Uh, He thought that these films like The Adventures of Robin Hood and The Charge of the Light Brigade and The Seahawks were turning him into a a juvenile kid's adventure hero, kind of like a comic book hero, and he wasn't being taken seriously as an actor. So a lot of his angst over that uh, was focused on Curtis. Ironically, who could play a better Robin Hood or a better swashbuckler than Errol Flynn? And although he didn't realize it at the time, and a lot of people didn't realize at the time, those films that Curtiz was directing him in, those adventure films, were just timeless classics. Uh, I mean, I think The Adventures of Robin Hood is an absolutely timeless film that that holds up uh, here today in 2018. I don't think anybody can doubt that. Just look at the remakes they tried to do. They they don't even hold a, a candle to the to the Errol Flynn Michael Curtiz film. No, absolutely not. I mean, Flynn was great in his own way, and despite all the acrimony uh, between the two of them uh, towards the end of Flynn's life, uh, he showed up and tried to uh, get a part in the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn that a very elderly Curtiz was making for Samuel Goldwyn in 1959. It was released in 60. And Sam Goldwyn Jr., who I interviewed for my book, told me a very, very poignant story of a dying Flynn showing up trying to get a part. He was broke, the life in the fast lane with substance abuse and so forth. Uh, He was on his last legs, and he said Mike handled him gently and most beautifully before sending him on his way. And at the end of the day, Curtiz and Goldwyn rode in together to the set, and usually they would talk about what they did today, what they did tomorrow. And he said Curtiz was just completely silent, and when he went to drop him off, uh, Curtiz turned to him with tears in his eyes and said, actor studio can make actor, but only God can make star. So Curtiz really appreciated Flynn and his talent and what, they had meant to each other and really understood the Hollywood star system. He nurtured the star system and the star system obviously nurtured him. 
Now, I think a lot of people think that when Curtis got to his, his later part of his career, the 50s and 60s, there was a decline. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. I, I think, uh, first off, he was an older man. And then from 1958 on, he was suffering from cancer and really didn't know how ill he was and yet still forged ahead. And he was in his 70s. He had lost, you know, the whole studio system and what he had known at Warner Brothers and the comfort zone he had had. I mean, he was at Warner Brothers for like a quarter century or a little bit longer, actually. So all of that changed. Nonetheless, uh, although his later pictures are critically uh, disparaged to some degree, he made some very, very worthwhile films. King Creole, which is absolutely the best movie that Elvis Presley ever made, and, and Elvis said that himself. Uh, really a good picture. And then there's a picture in 1958, The Proud Rebel, uh, that Curtis directed with Alan Ladd, had a reunion with Olivia de Havilland uh, after 15 years, and David Ladd, which is an excellent family picture uh, and, and much better, than, in my opinion, than Old Yeller, which was released by Buena Vista at the same time. So uh, there were still some bright spots uh, in the end of his career, but he did have trouble uh, getting material, directing good pictures. The thing about Curtiz is he was addicted to work. And uh, towards the end, he would take anything just in order to keep his, what I described as an incandescent mania <laughs> for directing movies, because that was his life. And directing films for Michael Curtiz came before family, fatherhood, sex, eating, <laughs> everything. I'm sorry we have to take a short break. We're talking to Alan Rode about his book about Michael Curtis. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the U.N. published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're in a conversation with Alan K. Rode, who wrote a book about one of the great Hollywood directors of all time, Michael Curtiz. Michael Curtiz, what did he feel his favorite film was? Uh, I think he, that's, that's somewhat difficult to say uh, because he always was looking forward rather than backward. I would say that his happiest experience was Yankee Doodle Dandy. Because uh, Curtiz was was a Jew born uh, and, and lived in an empire ruled by an emperor, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which all flew apart in World War One. And he served in World War One, was wounded in battle and had that experience. He had to get uh, his family out in World War Two 
and uh, uh, part of one of his sister's family ended up going to Auschwitz and dying. So this was a guy that was very, very patriotic. And Yankee Doodle Dandy, he worked so well with Cagney because he realized Cagney, in effect, directed himself. And then Cagney uh, didn't like critiques on how he treated some of the actors, but really Cagney really respected him. So they, they were great at, cab, at uh, collaboration and uh, working with each other. Plus, Cagney had significant power after signing a 1938 uh, contract with Warner Brothers, and uh, he got in a position where his brother, William Cagney, was the associate producer, and the usual interference that Curtiz experienced with Hal Wallace and Jack Warner with the micromanaging and hurry up, why are you shooting so many angles, why are you taking so long, a lot of that was minimized. So uh, based on the subject matter, working with Cagney and being kind of left alone to make the picture, I think Yankee Doodle Dandy was, was his happiest experience, certainly at Warner Brothers. Now you you started to get into this. What was Curtis's relationship, let's say, with with the producers, with the Warner Brothers? Uh, he ended up becoming his, his two greatest mentors were Daryl Zanuck, who was head of production until uh, he he left Warner Brothers in 1933, and certainly Hal Wallace, for whom he made many of his best pictures and. His relationship with Wallace I found to be very, very interesting because when Wallace took over for uh, Zanuck in 1933, he certainly wanted to put his personal stamp on the pictures, and he wanted to control uh, what was being – how the direction and how the picture was going to be shot and where it was going to be shot. And what Curtiz would do would would be to agree to everything and then go on the set and do exactly what he wanted to do. He would change wardrobe. He would add and delete dialogue. He would drop scenes. He would add scenes. And he really drove Hal Wallace around the bend on Captain Blood. And when during the production of uh, the, uh, um, uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, he had to actually threaten to fire critiques to get him to, to, to try to bend him at least partially to his will on close-ups and compositions and directing and so forth. Uh, but when The Adventures of Robin Hood was made in 37, uh, Curtiz was originally not the assigned director. William Keeley was uh, largely at the assistance of Errol Flynn, who liked Keeley and didn't like uh, Curtiz and appealed to Warner and Wallace, and and they acquiesced to that. However, about uh, 40% or halfway through the picture, uh, Wallace realized they were not getting the vitality and the action sequences were not being shot correctly. So he replaced Keeley with Curtiz, and Curtiz loved being the guy figuratively coming, riding the white horse in to save everybody's bacon at Warner Brothers. And of course, that picture with all of the props and the action sequences and the great production value. Uh, Warner Brothers put slightly over two million bucks into that during the Depression, which was a a lot of money. And the picture became this huge, huge hit. He reaffirmed uh, Errol Flynn's stardom, classic film. And that really brought Wallace and Curtis close together. And they became the closest of friends. They were both uh, driven workaholics solely focused on making movies, but they they boarded, uh, Wallace boarded his horse at Curtiz's ranch out in the San Fernando Valley, and they became very, very close. And of course, Wallace, after many years went by, had him come back to direct Elvis Presley and King Creole in 1958. Now, we talked a little bit about his relationship with James Cagney and Errol Flynn. What about Humphrey Bogart? Uh, Bogart respected Curtiz uh, a lot. In fact, when Bogart uh, signed his last contract with Warner Brothers in 1946, he was allowed to name uh, five or six directors that he would work with. And, of course, he named uh, people like John Huston, John Cromwell, Delmer Daves, and and Michael Curtiz. So he respected Curtiz. He did not like the way Curtiz would vent pressure by picking on a bit actor. And, you know, Curtiz was not a sadistic person uh, in the mold of, say, an Otto Preminger who would just pick on someone to, to enjoy breaking them down. But what happened is, is when, when things would go wrong, he'd blow his top and start yelling and screaming at people 
which which didn't go over well. And in fact, during Casablanca, uh, uh, at one point, um, uh, Claude Rains and uh, and Bogart and Paul Henry just you know told him you know we don't want all this yelling and screaming. And when Curtis blew up, they disappeared for about three or four hours, much to his consternation. But Bogart respected him and also uh, got uh, Lauren Bacall kind of girded her when she made pictures with Curtis that, you know, he was a genius with the camera. He knew what he was doing, but, uh, you know, be, beware the temperament and so on and so forth. I'm going to ask you one last question about actors because he did a couple of films with John Wayne. How did they get along? John Wayne, this was towards the end of Curtis's career, and they did Trouble Along the Way, uh, which the working title was Alma Mater, and Jack Warner changed the title to Trouble Along the Way, and Wayne always said like it sounded like a truck having its axle broken <laughs> uh, going over the Cajon Pass and wondered why the hell they changed the title to that. But he liked the film. It had human values. Wayne was a football coach, divorced, raising a, a single daughter. And the film definitely has some charm. I think Wayne was a very loyal guy. And Curtis, uh, Wayne was one of the extras that Curtis hired for Noah's Ark back in 1928. He, he wanted these hefty football player type guys. And he picked a young John Wayne, who was a football player at USC, and Andy Devine. Uh, and they were in that. So Curtis and Wayne went way back. So there was some loyalty there. And then Wayne hired him to make uh, what turned out to be Curtis's last picture, The Comancheros, in 1961. And as I document in my book, that was a very sad affair because Curtis by that time was riddled with cancer, was on location in Utah in the broiling heat, and he just virtually collapsed. He ended up stumbling hurting his leg, and when they x-rayed his leg, it was like lattice work from the cancer. So what happened on that picture was Wayne directed at least half of the picture off the books because Curtis was too sick to continue and then died early in 1962. The one thing that impresses me very much about Michael Curtis, how many actors were either nominated or won Academy Awards in films directed by Michael Curtis? Uh, quite a few of them. I mean, there was Joan Crawford, there was John Garfield, there was Eve Arden, there was Anne Blythe. Of course, Crawford got her Oscar for Mildred Pierce. And uh, as she said, uh, he gave me, he, Curtis, gave me a postgraduate course in humiliation. And ah. then he started teaching me. Uh, and, and so there were many, many uh, um, uh, Black Fury, Paul Muni. Uh, many, many uh, awards and honors. And, and Curtis himself was nominated for Four Daughters, Angels with Dirty Faces, Captain Blood, and he finally won the big one for Casablanca. And when he got up there to make a speech, he said in his rather garbled Hungarian-English syntax, he says, you know, four times I've been nominated for this award. I had a speech, so this time I didn't have a speech. So thank you very much. I'm I'm grateful for the two-minute time limit, <laughs> and that was it, uh, you know. So, uh, um, yeah, he was very good with actors. Uh, he understood scenes, and uh, Jimmy Lydon, who is still with us, who was in Life with Father, told me, he said, you know, I've spent most of my life behind the camera as well as in front of it because Jimmy was a director and a producer, and he said Mike was the most artistic director he ever worked with. He said it was never just a two shot or a medium shot or an establishing shot. It was always beautifully arranged. And he said, and the cameraman didn't arrange the shots in Mike's pictures. Mike arranged all of them. And he said he was a very, very artistic man uh, and so forth. And he was, and he started out as an actor uh, back in Budapest, graduated from the Royal Academy of Art. So he was a trained actor who worked on stage and worked in early silent films before he moved in the director's chair. So I think he understood acting and he understood he was always in a quest for realism, for authenticity. Uh, and this is where some of his detractors accused him of getting a little carried away where 
uh, there was a film he made in like 1926 where the baby had to cry and the cameraman Hal Moore said Pertiz kept going behind the baby rearranging the diaper and then the baby was crying he said I realized the son of a bitch was pinching the baby to make the baby cry so if the cowboy had to fall into the cactus or there was the flood in Noah's Ark like oh let's dump hundreds of thousands of gallons of water on these sets that had all these extras in them that didn't know what was really going to happen and so this this again this crusade for authenticity uh he kind of crossed the line as far as uh, safety was concerned and so on and so forth but uh he was a great director of actors there's no question about that what is your favorite michael curtis film oh that's like asking me which one of my children or grandchildren i like the best (laughs) (laughs) uh I, i think i think one of the films that has really come to the forefront after being uh, overlooked and, and disregarded for many years is a 1950 film he made with uh, John Garfield and Pat Neal called The Breaking Point. And this was based on Hemingway's To Have and To Have Not, but it was much more faithful to Hemingway's narrative. Uh, to Have and To Have Not with Bogart and Bacall was really more like Casablanca uh, set in France, it was it resembled not, had really little to do with Hemingway's book, but the movie uh, with John Garfield is really a classic of of film noir and melodrama. And Garfield is a veteran try, with a fishing boat. It was shot in Newport, trying to support his family, and uh, ends up making all of the wrong decisions uh, because of his desperation to get out of debt and support his wife and his kids, and at the same time. He's uh, he's tempted by Patricia Neal to be unfaithful to his wife uh, and so forth. And it's just really a terrifically uh, filmed, beautifully shot, beautifully written and not a trace of censorship or studio phonius that that permeated a lot of films in those days. And unfortunately, what happened to it is during post-production, Jack Warner uh, sent a memo to Curtiz and Jerry Wald, the producer, saying, I think we have a film here on the order of Casablanca. And then uh, the periodical Red Channels came out, which listed Garfield as a supposed uh, communist sympathizer or someone that that supported communist causes. And Jack Warner, who had uh, made a horse's ass out of himself in 1947, in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, was very leery about all of that. So he canceled uh, Garfield's two-picture contract that had another picture, uh, released the breaking point with very little publicity, and and in effect uh, buried the film. And it remained obscure for many years until quite recently there's been a restored print from the Film Foundation uh, Criterion has brought it out on Blu-ray with a uh, with a featurette from Julie Garfield, Garfield's daughter, and yours truly. And uh, the film has gotten a lot uh, a lot more critical heft that it deserves. So that's certainly one picture that I would point to as uh, one of Curtiz's best films. How far after that did uh, John Garfield die? It wasn't soon after, was it? Oh, he he died. He made one more movie. He ran all the way. And then he died in 1952, I believe, at the age of 39. And uh, he couldn't work. He couldn't work. They wanted uh, the the see the the FBI and uh, UX. They knew who all these people were who were members of the party and all this other stuff. But they wanted to force people and force these movie stars into these public confessions. Uh, uh, for publicity reasons and reasons of their own that had nothing to do with safeguarding the country against some threat that was completely imaginary to begin with. And Garfield wasn't going to name names and name his friends, but he wanted to work. So they basically shut off the opportunity for him. He couldn't work. He had the FBI coming to his house and hounding him and everything. And uh, the late uh, actor, dialogue director, Mickey Knox, who was a friend of mine, uh, was also a friend of Garfield's and told me a story of of walking through Central Park with Garfield shortly, uh, about two weeks before he died of a heart attack. And Garfield was just distraught saying, what do they want me to do? What do they want from me? I just want to work. I'm an actor. And and certainly uh, the mistreatment that John Garfield experienced from 
UAC, the FBI, and the people that refused to let him work uh, certainly hastened his death at the age of 39. It was a, a, a just a real, real tragedy. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, before Marlon Brando and before James Dean, there was John Garfield. I think he was one of the great American actors of the 20th century that, that uh, came to a tragic end through no fault of his own. Why should we be talking about a director who hasn't made a film in, oh, 50 some odd years? Why is it important? Well, I think it's important to recognize that this, this man who came here in 1926 that never really mastered the English language that has was turned into kind of a anecdotal gift that keeps on giving with the anecdotes about his behavior and his malaprops and everything was really one of the great American directors of all time that made some of the greatest films. I mean, look at Casablanca. We just celebrated the 75th anniversary of Casablanca and we're still talking about it. We're still watching it. And, and I think it's in, important for other, for other generations, next generations, to really recognize this because films are our history and they're important. And I think now we're into this thing where we have generations of people watching movies on their telephones and they're talking about content, like content, uh, a movie like Casablanca is the same as a YouTube video and content and all of that. So I think it's important for people to recognize uh, that these films are part of their history, that they hold up well, and to recognize and understand that the man who made these great movies was not just uh, someone who couldn't speak English very well and had temper tantrums and shot the script, because as, uh, as I discovered writing about him, he was a very complex, uh, character who was an extremely talented artist and uh, I'm glad to see now with my book and with Turner Classic Movies and so forth that he's really getting the recognition that he deserves. Well thank you for, for writing the book. The name of the book Michael Curtis, A Life in Film the author Alan Rode. Thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you Michael. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all call connors and sullivan attorneys at law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in brooklyn midtown manhattan queens and staten island 718-238-6500 that's 718-238-6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person, I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome to Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now, we're very pleased to have our next guest, Franklin Graham, and he has a book out about his father, Through My Father's Eyes. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Great to be with you. Okay, now everybody knows who your father was. 
Why did you write the book? Right. Well, it was uh, it started back about 12 years ago. A uh, uh, a publisher from Nashville, Tennessee, said, "Franklin, you ought to write uh, the lessons you've learned from your father uh, while he's still alive." And I thought, "Yeah, that I, I may do that someday." A year later, Franklin, uh, have you written that book yet? No, I haven't. And um, so I started thinking about it, and I decided I wanted to write the the things that I've learned from my father that I might be able to help other people. And so for the last 12 years, I've worked on this. So this isn't something that we just put together here recently, but we've been working on it for 12 years. And you know, sometimes when I say working on it, you, you work on it for a few weeks and then you kind of get away from it for a month or two, then you're back on it again. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to take time to think about these lessons because what I learned from watching my father and, and watching really through his eyes, was a reflection of my father living his life to please his father in heaven, Almighty God. And it was just a, a great lesson for me to watch my father uh, serve his father in heaven and watching through his eyes. Your father, when did he you know, come to the Lord Jesus? Uh, 1934. And uh, he was, uh, there was a... Um, an evangelist that uh, had come to Charlotte, and my grandfather and some other men had prayed that that God would do something uh, that would change Charlotte and that it would uh, have an impact on the world. And so they were praying for this evangelist. His name was Mordecai Ham, and they came, and my father uh, went to the meeting. He he didn't he felt convicted. And uh, so he got and went to the choir to sing in the choir because he didn't want the evangelist looking at him. And uh, the evangelist explained that how we are sinners and our sins separate us from God and that uh, God is willing to forgive sin. But the only way that we can come to God is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that night, the evangelist gave an invitation, and my father went forward uh, in 1934. And it was interesting, you know, he, my father wanted to play baseball as a young boy. That was his dream, baseball and girls. I, I thought, well, that's probably like most teenagers even today. But he, um, and I'm not sure which order it was in, uh, girls first or baseball or baseball or girls, but he, um, he wanted to play baseball. And as a young boy, he met Babe Ruth, and he always had a dream of being, uh, you know, a, a player for the New York Yankees. And I thought it interesting that when my father gave his life to Jesus Christ, that um, God not only took him to the corners of the earth, uh, but he stood in Yankee Stadium, not to, not to bat a ball, but he stood in Yankee Stadium to preach and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tens of thousands of people uh, came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's interesting, Donald Trump, President Trump told me that as a young boy, he went to Yankee Stadium to hear my father preach. That That is something I didn't know. Did your father ever have any doubts during his life? We all have doubts, but did he ever have any strong doubts? Yes, he did. Um, there was a period in his life where there were other contemporaries of his that were doubting the authority of the Word of God. And my father, I tell this in the book, where he was in California uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains, and he walked out one moonlight night with uh, his Bible in his hand and he went out and he just put that Bible and opened it up and laid it on a stump and he just prayed. He said, Lord, I don't understand everything in this book. And there are a lot of people that are telling me that I should doubt it, but I'm just going to accept it by faith to be your word from cover to cover. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to believe it all. And that night, my father just kind of settled that in his heart, that uh, the Bible was God's word from cover to cover, and he was going to preach it, and he was going to teach it with power and authority. And uh, it changed his whole ministry. Those other people, they, they faded off uh, the pages of history never to be heard from again. But God touched my father and used my father, and I believe in a remarkable way because my father simply believed God. He didn't understand it all, but he just simply believed it. What year was that? That would have been 19, I think it's 48 or 49, I believe. 
when did your father become famous? When did he become a household name? Uh, 1949, uh, he was preaching in Los Angeles. And there was a, um, uh, it had a big tent. And uh, it went on for week after week after week. And Randolph Hearst, this would have been Patty Hearst's uh, grandfather, uh, who was the the largest publisher, I believe, at that time in the United States. And Randolph Hearst, for some reason, sent the order out to Puff Graham. And my father ne- never met Randolph Hearst. Uh, as far as he knew, they never talked to each other or sent a letter to one another. But because Randolph Hearst said Puff Graham, my father became uh, overnight uh, a... Uh, a, a, a well-known uh, evangelist, and uh, so that's how I got started. And you, did you ever meet Randolph Hearst? Anybody ever meet Randolph Hearst no, in your family? No, okay. no, no. Mm-mm. It was something. It was something God did. It was just something God did. Uh, my father never wanted to be a celebrity. Never sought to be a celebrity. And the Billy Graham that the world saw on television is the same Billy Graham that we we see at home, uh, or we saw at home. And uh, he he was a humble person. He was a man of prayer. Uh, he believed in uh, preaching the whole word of God. He preached on heaven. He preached on hell. He preached on forgiveness. He preached on judgment. He was, you know, some people would say, well, those were to preach on hell or judgment. That's negative. Uh, but it's what the Bible says. And my father always believed in the authority of what the Bible said. So my father would preach it. And uh, when he gave an invitation, people weren't coming to Billy Graham. Uh, He'd give an invitation for people to come to God, to confess their sins and to turn from those sins. And by faith, to accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he died for the sins of mankind on the cross and shed his blood on that cross for all of mankind, that he was buried for our sins, that on the third day God raised him to life. This is what my father preached, and God honored that and uh, took my father to a level that has never been seen before. Uh, he spoke to more people face-to-face than uh, any other person in in, in history. Uh, nobody, uh, even to this day, has not addressed as many people as Billy Graham, and he lived to be 100 years old. Why do you want the reader to pick up this book? Why do you want, what do you want the reader to learn from this book? The, these are lessons that uh, I learned from watching my father. And uh, these are lessons that uh, I believe can have an impact on a person's life, can change a person's life. The name of the book, Through My Father's Eyes, from Franklin Graham. Thank you, Reverend Graham, for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you so very much. God bless you guys. God bless you. Thanks again to Franklin Graham to share his thoughts about his father, Billy Graham. I know, Beth, you're a lot bigger fan of Billy Graham than I was. Not that I uh, have any disrespect toward the gentleman, but you had a lot more respect for him. Why, Why did you love Billy Graham so much? My it was my family grew up with it. Um, my dad w- listened to him all the time whenever he could. Um, so he was a favorite of my father's. So um, then of course you go. The Crusades were extraordinary, and I actually had some friends that that sang sometimes um, in a Billy Graham crusade. And then um, Michael. When he was younger, uh, Billy Graham was in um, Flushing Meadow. Mike, is that the where the old uh, World Fair had been? He was there, and Michael, when he was young, got to hear him. And he was not young then, but um, you just knew he lived his faith. There was never, never a false step. And getting back to Michael Curtis. Again, you know, like I, I, I was interested, you know, like we all, we're always big fans of John Wayne on this show. And I was a little interested or surprised to hear John Wayne and Michael Curtis, they went back to Noah's Ark, that silent picture, and that uh, Michael Curtis wanted big guys who, when the flood came in, they wouldn't get hurt by the waters or whatever. Of course, I think one person really did die in that movie. So, well, I saw that for the first time. Had you ever seen it before we watched it the other day? No, and, and what I understand, of course, from Al wrote that that developed a relationship between John Wayne and Michael Curtis so that 40 years later, when Michael Curtis is directing the Comancheros, John Wayne takes over the direction, but he doesn't take credit for taking over the direction. He gives it to Michael Curtis out of respect from back in those days in the silent pictures of Noah's Ark. Right. 
when we were watching it, we knew that how many at least one person died, right? That's my understanding. I don't know what really happened. Of course, we weren't there back there in 1927 or whatever. No, but um, there, as a director, obviously he was controversial, but um, and the film and everything. But as far as we we know, the extras and even some of the stars did not realize that tons of water going to be dropped on them. Of course, at the Platform same time, if you're growth. doing a movie called Noah's Ark, you think you might get involved with water at some point. <laughs> well, I guess so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, one thing I learned, Jimmy Lydon, who played in Life with Father, one of the kids, he's still alive. Chris Cordani, you think we can get him on the show? Oh, that'd be Hi. great. I think we can they give that a shot. They were all redheads. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. redheads back then. <laughs> well, let's take Did a you s- ever see that movie, Chris? Uh, uh, yes, I have. So let's take a swing at it. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Okay, so that'd be wonderful. So he's still alive. So that that was filmed in 1946, or it was released in 1946. I'm sorry. So he was a young kid then. I I guess he's about 80 some odd years old now. Think of who he worked with. I mean, William Powell, Powell, Irene Dunn, Elizabeth Taylor is in it. And it's one thing I have to disagree with with Alan Road, going back to our friend Alan Riskin. I really don't feel any sympathy for those guys who were communists in the 1940s and 50s. They were trying to take down our government. And just because they had a little bit of a tough time getting a job, who cares? Uh, That's my personal opinion. (laughs) But, you know, if somebody was a Nazi today, we wouldn't give them a job. I know that. I know that. And I don't see the difference. I don't think there is a difference okay. with you here. All right, don't forget our seminars. You've been listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Bye-bye, Dennis everybody. Kincaid, taking us away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.